one of the things we noticed was that, or realized, was that the vast majority of the sins in, uh, committed in personal finance by mass affluent consumers tend to be sins of omission rather than commission. It's what they don't do that hurts them. You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. All right. Welcome to the episode of the Payments Innovation Podcast brought to you by Currency Cloud. This is your host, Chris D'Antuono. And as you can tell um, from our viewers today, there is a new twist that we're bringing in video recording. And so we're really excited about a, a simulcast uh, opportunity to have video as well as uh, the audio streaming as our traditional podcasts have been uh, the last few years. So really excited about our transition into exploring more deeper dive. My focus moving forward is going to be on the challenger bank sector, which we've released a previous video to explain exactly what we're looking at, more thought leadership uh, opportunities within the challenger bank space here in North America, more specifically in the U.S. There's a lot more complexities there, which I'm sure we'll address today. But as we get into it today, I wanted to introduce my guest, Ben Sopit from Unify Money. Ben has founded Unify Money and has recently gone into a beta test launch uh, with his users. And instead of me explaining his value proposition, I'll go ahead and kick it over to Ben. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Yeah, it's really good to have you on. And uh, Ben and I have been in uh, conversations over the last six to 10 months, I think now, you know, working and just discussing the, the space in specific. And I really wanted to get him on to kick off our new series as He's really done a lot of research uh, using the help of everybody, I think, as well as himself, to understand really the landscape of the market here in the U.S. So, Ben, if you could just give a, a background for our listeners and then, uh, you know, what you guys are doing at Unify, which is a bit different, uh, I think, in the market, and then what your plans are a bit moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. So we, we consider ourselves the first fully featured neobank focused on serving the needs of young professionals. So these are high earning young professionals, affluent millennials. We're really focused on enabling financial services to be easy, to, be, uh, to deliver genuine value for money, and to enable people to reach financial resilience, financial security faster and with a higher probability of success than if they conducted their or managed their finances through traditional means. One of the things we noticed was that or realized was that the vast majority of the sins in, uh, committed in personal finance by mass affluent consumers tend to be sins of omission rather than commission. It's what they don't do that hurts them. They don't dollar cost average. They don't maximize their deposit interest. Uh, interest. So for example, an average customer earning over $160,000 a year in the US has $42,000 sitting in a checking account earning next to no interest. And then you know, $16 billion left in unredeemed credit and debit card rewards. And whilst these are small in the greater scheme of things on a day, a week, or a monthly basis, they add up. And they add up potentially to a great deal of money over, over the working life of a, of, a, of, a, of a person and the opportunity cost as well. If that money was properly invested in a, in a low-cost, highly diversified fund, it compounds. So the reason why people don't optimally manage their money is because it's really hard. We exist in a very challenging landscape from a, from a financial services point of view where products are very fragmented. 
there's a huge amount of friction and moving money in 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 you know the, the amount of work involved for the, the the individual benefit on a on a day week month basis is 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 very low and you know it's managing money as a low interest category for most people earning money everyone's interested in spending money great fun <laughs> managing money not so much so people are not good at doing high frequency low interest complex tasks but but technology is incredibly well suited to that so what we want to do is a create a platform that integrates traditionally separate products such as checking savings credit card investing in a single app and secondly automating genuine automation of the tasks that we should all be doing on a daily basis saving spending investing we should be saving and investing as often as we're spending but we don't but you can do with the use of technology and when I say genuine automation, I think the, the word automation, money automation, money management automation is overused in the market. In most times, what that means is automated notifications telling you what to do. Right. And you know, whilst that's slightly better than not doing anything at all, the real benefit, I think, is only going to be realized when technology actually does it for us, as opposed to telling us what we should be doing. Yeah, taking action of the actual you know, money movement or decisions. Yeah, so the difference is being told you've got too much money here or you should be doing something there. Again, you know, that becomes a nag very quickly. It becomes this background noise. Whereas, uh, you know, and, and I think Acorns really created this. You know, they, they really took this idea of do an action once and then as long as you do nothing else, you, you continue to do the right behavior, to, to model the right behavior with zero effort. So we've really taken that idea of, um, you know, technology doing what you should be doing for you uh, with your money management. And we've extrapolated that and expanded that across all of everyday money management, saving, spending, and investing. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I'm guilty of the alerts and I do get them. I tend to get them frequently. And then basically it goes to more of an ignore because essentially it's the same alert pretty much at the same time, right? So, exactly. Um, yeah. If you can turn that into action, it would be beneficial. Uh, in that aspect. Yeah. So the, the, you know, the better outcome for all of us is we tell you when we've done it and we tell you how you're benefiting, exactly. not we, we tell you what you've done wrong and what you should have done. And, you know, there's a lot of psychology involved here. And I think that's where of a lot course. of fintech, <laughs> fintech founders tend to focus on the technology and they tend to focus on optimizing for, you know, rational behavior, whereas we're all guilty of irrationality. And, you know, we can solve for that by, by, by the judicious use of technology to essentially help trick ourselves into modeling behavior that benefit ourselves. Makes a lot of sense. So I guess to take, to take a step into the ecosystem, you know, and I know we've, we've talked prior to this, and I think it'll be a good topic to start on. Whereas uh, the, the, the ecosystem, maybe about five years ago, maybe even more than that, it was really about debundling the banks, right? So taking a specific service and offering that service out. For, for example, as you mentioned, Acorns, right? Taking a, an investment type of model, i.e. they did it differently than the banks were maybe doing it at the time, but that was the fintech offering. And now we're starting to see companies like that um, start to rebundle other services, whether that's a checking account, a, a type of savings account, or, or how you will, tied to a cart. Could you talk a little bit about, I guess, the transition from doing that, why you think that's happening, and then the, the benefits to that? Yeah. And I guess probably the challenges that go within that as well. So there's an irony in that, you know, with the, the last 10 years with, with fintech doing exactly that, you know, taking a niche element of the overall ecosystem and optimizing for it is that it's actually led to greater complexity. 
20 years ago, it would be unusual to have more than one or two banking relationships and you bought everything from that bank. Whereas now, it's not unusual to have 10 or 15 different financial apps on your phone. You don't, you don't use 80 to 90% of them or, or you don't use them very regularly, but they're still there and you've invested time and energy. So it's actually become almost harder to manage your finance, even though individual elements may be optimized. And it's, it's, it's a truism, I think, that for, for consumers, money is a very holistic thing. You know, our money, whether it's invested in your house, in your wallet, in cash in a piggy bank, whatever it might be, is, is, is seen to be a very singular entity. Whereas the industry treats it very, very separate. You know, your insurance, your investments, your 401k, your income, your savings, your deposits, your CDs. It's, it's, it's a very industry-centric model. And, and, you know, I was guilty of this. My, my first idea was essentially Brex for consumers because I came from uh, the credit card industry and it was a real eye-opener. I had a meeting at, at Brex and, 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 and listened to Enrique talk about what, you know, his journey never occurred to me that a small fintech could actually bring innovation in the credit card market. I'd, I'd spent a significant portion of my career trying to convince big incumbent banks to be innovative and, of course, failed. And so this opened up this, this, this huge possibility that all of this sort of latent, these latent ideas about innovation around credit cards could maybe be put into action. But I felt that, that it really wasn't going far enough. You know, solving for credit cards, but not everything else is a bit like a doctor fixing your feet, but not your hands. You know, you want all of these things to be working optimally. And that's really was the, the genesis of this idea, which is that, well, what if we put all these things in one place and manage them as a holistic whole? And it also gave us the ability to focus, I think, on, and, it, and it's going back to this idea that a lot of founders are focused on the engineering and, are, and, and rather than the psychology, you know, it's my belief that most consumers are more focused on the outcome than the process. You know, they're not that interested in the APYs and the APRs or the difference between that, the product constructs. And they all know, and I think it's relatively universal, that everybody wants to be financially resilient. Everybody wants to feel that they, they are managing their money properly and they're getting the most money you know, back from their own investments. And it's, it's patently not the case in the, in the current market. And the industry has done a really good job of hiding that. And part of our job is to, is to try and help people to, to see and understand where they are losing money, whether it's a hidden cost or a, a, an explicit cost. Nobody, you know, the sense of taking money out of your wallet physically is a very visceral experience for people. But if you take the same or more money out, but it's done invisibly in, in, in hidden, you know, opportunity cost being the, the classic one, it's very difficult for people to get their heads around opportunity cost. So by rebundling, it really gave us the opportunity to talk to people about the outcomes and you know, not to have to expect them to actually do a myriad of activities that, that they're very unlikely to do on a sustained basis. So I think, I think that's you know, this, this rebundling, but in a, in a very distinctly fintech environment, I, I think is really interesting because it gives, it, you know, the problem with the old model is that one company can't be good at everything. And yet banks were developing everything in-house. It was all on top of legacy infrastructure, whereas uh, a modern fintech rebundling can be taking the best in the market and integrating that into a singular customer experience. So it should mean hypothetically, you know, there's obviously the uh, you know the, the the technical complexity and the and the and the complexity of managing across multiple regulatory and compliance regimes 
is, is hard, but not impossible to solve for. And if it means we can bring the best technology, the best products and services, and rebundle that for specific consumer segments, that's really what we see as the future. And you know, the market is slowly moving there. You, know, you, you mentioned Wealthfront, Betterment, et cetera, Robinhood adding on products. What we've done is really jump to what we think is the end game, which is an, a fully integrated platform um, and genuine integration where the products actually are not just sitting alongside each other, but dynamically linked and dependent upon each other. Yeah. So there's one point in there I want to dive into, and I do want to get to the segmentation part because that's a big piece, I think, of where you guys differentiate to the market. But you did mention, so, you know, the, the consumer, you know, let's say 10 years ago, did have all these services at the bank, but apparently uh, there was opportunity for fintechs to, you know, come in and take pieces away from that and then now rebundle. Do you run into the same situation now for the consumer? Now they get, I'm sure, a better user experience uh, through, the, through the technology and through the user experience from the application, but are each area being focused on um, enough? So let's say you got like a wealth run, a betterment, for example, or traditionally investment type of products. Are they giving enough value to the checking side of their business or different segments within that to sustain that, that consumer? Are you going... Do you, is there opportunity for them to run into the same issues that the banks had with the end consumer um, of not giving them enough, I guess, um, services? Um, I, I think there's been a big shift, obviously, during COVID and, 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 and with the Fed effective rate falling to the level it is. I think a lot of the ideas around cash accounts that Wealthfront, Betterman, M1, et cetera, have launched um, have probably lost a lot of their reasons for being in that they, they were really running with a high interest story, which was, which was easily achievable when the Fed effective rate was over 2%. Uh, you simply had to keep your costs low and, and give a significant amount back. And the big, banks, the big banks haven't actually changed their checking and savings rates during COVID. They didn't have to. They were already 0.01% exactly. 0.02% respectively. Whereas if you look at the last 10 years and how the Fed effective rate has varied, you know, it's, it's been extremely high and it's averaged like over one, one and a half or something like that. Whereas the banks have just been giving nothing back. They've just been absorbing that as profitability. And that was a clear opportunity of arbitrage just to give more, more back, to the, back to the consumers because you could. And that, that's disappeared. So now the question is, well, if we can't simply offer more money, what are we going to offer? And I, you know, I don't have any insight into where those companies are thinking, but fortunately, we were actually thinking both in terms of value and in terms of product proposition. And the product proposition was genuine automation so that you know, the manual labor was taken care of. Uh, you know, we take care of the manual labor and we help guarantee a better outcome because of that. So it's, it's a bit like you know, the, the value of dollar cost averaging is not trying to time the market and you're going to be wrong at least 50% of the time. It's, it's about being in as early as possible at the lowest cost as possible and enabling that as Acorns did originally and now we've extrapolated that is, is I think a really great product innovation that is, that is independent of things like the Fed effective rate and, and short or medium term pricing changes in the market. It's just good behavior that we should all be doing. None of us do because you know we've got better things to do with our time and we've got more demanding, more interesting things than you know the, the the manual work involved in let's say investing three dollars fifty a day for thirty or forty years is is a very high amount of manual labor um, and and um, not many people are going to be able to s sustain that over a, a, you know even a weeks or months let alone decades 
whereas technology can do that for you. Um, and if you were to start doing that from age 26, by age 60, you'd have over $200,000 in a, in, a, in a portfolio. And so the, you know, it's a no-brainer as long as it's no effort. And, and that's really what the product innovation is. So I think that's, that's, the, that's certainly where we think the, that there, there is as much value in the product innovation as in the pricing. Um, pricing goes up and down and there's things outside of our control, whereas product innovation, if it's solving for you know, intrinsic structural issues around people's behavior and mindset and money, then that should be evergreen value. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned, I mean, the automation of the passive opportunities is, is, is monumental if you look at it over a, a genuine period of time. One last piece in this area, which um, I'd, I'd want to cover before we transition to the segmentation side, is that so, you know, by, by rebundling, um, it does require, if you want to offer a full suite of services, it does require the financial institution or their partners to be able to have some sort of API infrastructure as a standard BAU moving forward, especially in the US, it is fairly new and you're not gonna have that many banks that have that opportunity. So how, I guess, are you guys or how have you navigated the, the, the ecosystem here to be able to package together you know, different services to be able to bundle and, and really sell it as, as your own value to the end customer? Um, I mean, obviously, you don't have to give away your uh, your secret sauce and all of that, yeah. but we're we're totally behind, um, you know, presenting API infrastructure um, comparable to making many partners that you're passing customers over to. And I think it's a key point that we should touch on before we, tr- before we transition to the segmentation side. So there's there's two challenges. One is the technology readiness, and the second, which which is little talked about because it's not very sexy. And there's no, no one comes out of university with a degree in process and, and, and regulatory optimization, but trying to work across three or four different regulatory environments and have a, have a, intrins- have a systematic funds flow that makes sense for everybody across those. And we're not just talking about um, the checking account and the and the investing and the credit card, but international remittance, for example. You know, how what's the funds flow look like? Um, what is the compliance KYC AML account setup process look like? Uh, other forms of alternative investing trading, so gold and silver, for example. Again, you you know you, you need to create an account that needs to be. What's the model for the funds flow? That to be honest, is more of an art than a science. And we're, we're finding that very, because what we're doing is not being done before, no one's got experience there. So we're all working with our partners. And I, I'd say we're working with seven or eight different companies at the moment from very large, very traditional, like UMB, 108 years old, $26 billion in assets publicly listed, all the way down to API first tech startups. And you yeah, the tech is different, but it can all be sold for. The really hard part, I would say, that we're, we're doing for the first time is trying to figure out what does opening a single account look like from a customer's perspective, and how do we orchestrate that uh, across eight different partners who have fundamentally different compliance, regulatory ideas, processes, systems, providers, and compliance and regulation is an art. It's not a science. You'd think there'd be 10 things you need to satisfy regulation, even if it's the same regulator. But there's a huge amount of customization. There's a huge amount of subjectivity involved. And it means you have to talk to the individual compliance heads of those companies and, and rationalize with them and get their agreement. And, and honestly, the tech side is, is 
pretty straightforward and there's a lot of people out there who know how to build really good APIs. There's very few people who've done this work about trying to orchestrate across multiple different regimes and it's, it's complex and hard. So I, I'd, I'd say, honestly, I know anything in technology can be solved for and we're in the right place to solve for that. It's the, it's the, it's the old fashioned negotiation around how do we create the bright experience whilst maintaining absolutely the right levels of compliance, um, risk management, and you know, adhere to the spirit and the word of the regulation. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think there's, you know, it's, we're at the, the beginning of the infrastructure play, I think. And then that's where open banking comes involved, where you, know, you would hope that some sort of, there, there's some sort of open compliance uh, regime that helps you you know, utilize multiple tools in a compliant manner and give you that. Compliance is, if, if compliance as a service, you know, providing it's cross, you know, cross, cross industry, you know, so it's not just insurance, it's not just banking, it's not just payments, it's, it's everything. Um, the yeah. first person who comes up with that idea, I'm all behind them. I'll be their first. Yeah, person. it's definitely opportunity in that space. So I did want to transition over to the segmentation side, which we've been dancing around uh, to this point, but. You no, know, I think what, what where you guys are at and who you're targeting is is definitely a differentiator in the market from comparable challenger banks or or, or programs. I think uh, you know the incumbents to start. I guess you can call like the simple financials, Varos, and Chimes of the world. Very specific segment um, to take away from the banks. You would think maybe you know underbanked, underbanked. You know a little bit more of a lower income aspect of a of a of a user. Um, to to take away from the bank, but I think to the bank's perspective, you're not really you know even even taking a fraction of a of a of a cost to them or or of a benefit. So I would love to get your thoughts on I guess where we're going as a as a as a landscape of the challenger banks more moving more into segmentation, yeah. and then specifically you and your team uh, and, and what your value that you're bringing to a specific segment as well. It's really interesting um, in your take on it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's two reasons why we focused on affluent uh, professionals. The first is the competitive pressure. You know, there's no fintechs in that space. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, of the 100 and I think 130, 140 players in fintech banking services, 90, over 95% of them are focused very clearly on people earning less than 25 or $50,000. You know, it's the typical debit card, salary advance, mobile app model. And then there's a few who are around the sort of 50 to 100. Uh, and our focus is 100, 150,000 plus. And we wanted to compete with the top 10 banks. We did not want to compete with 75, 85 challenger fintechs, you know, with essentially the same product aimed at essentially the same people. Secondly, we also saw those customers as being incredibly underserved and by the, by the incumbents. And yes, there's a lot of choice. You can go and buy the same product from Chase or you could buy it from Bank of America, but it's effectively the same product and you're getting gouged whichever way you look at it. And we fundamentally believe that you know, affluent, highly paid individuals need just as much, if not more help than those who are you know, not earning as much. If you look at, uh, and, and you know, the, we, we tend to talk about young doctors as a, as a, as a sort of, um, uh, as a persona. It's, it's more difficult to get people to uh, feel sorry for young bankers or, or, or young lawyers. Um, <laughs> so let's take young doctors as being, you know, a, a very uh, a, a sort of, um, you know, a group that most people would, would like to see successful. 
um, young doctors actually suffer, uh, or doctors in general actually suffer. They, they, they're amongst, it's in fact, that it's the highest earning profession in the US. Uh, something like uh, four or five of the top 10 highest earning professions in the US are all to do with medicine and dentistry. And, and yet, a very high proportion of those people do not retire in, by any means wealthy, uh, and in many cases, quite the opposite. And the reasons are, are, are fairly well documented. Uh, there's a really good blog called The White Code Investor. Um, it talks a lot about this. You know, um, young doctors are coming into the workforce 10 years later than anybody else. They're coming in with, you know, on average, $200,000 of student debt. They are working in, in, in they, they, they go from zero, you know, they go from student level economics to relatively high earners relatively quickly, and no one's there to give them training or support. Plus, they have very demanding careers, which is taking up the majority of their time. So the last thing they want to do is figure out how to manage money and, and, and you know, how to optimize. And, and then you know, they're entering the workforce in their late 20s, early 30s, which is statistically the moment that the majority of people in the US get married, have kids, and buy a house. So there's all of this stuff happening all at the same time. And decisions that are made at that point can affect them for the rest of their life. And you know, they, that's exactly the time when they need more help. So we saw a genuine need in the market we saw the incumbents really benefiting from lack of competition, lack of real choice, lack of innovation. And we didn't see any other fintechs really focusing in the, in the way we want to focus on this market with a, with a fully featured value proposition that gives you everything and more that you get from a top 10 bank, but a whole bunch of things besides. So that, that's really where we ended up with that audience. It's, it's sort of ironic. We do talk to investors. We had one investor who's a millionaire living in Dubai said, I'm not going to invest in you guys because I, I don't think you're inclusive enough, which, which seemed a bit <laughs> odd. You know, and, and there's a lot of VCs out there who, who are very keen to invest in you know, uh, subprime mass market consumers because the, the need is apparently much more obvious. I, w- I would argue that the need is just as great for high earners. You know, being a high owner does not guarantee being rich by any stretch of the imagination. And I think COVID has really taught an entire generation that bad things happen to good people. Nobody at Uber or Airbnb was expecting to be laid off. And financial resilience is, I think, incredibly important, both on an individual and at an economic level. You know, it's the mass affluent who are paying the most taxes. It's the mass affluent who are buying the most houses. They are the ones shopping in the grocery stores. They're the ones going on holiday and, and, and really powering a very significant part of the, of the economy. And the more of those people that are financially resilient, the less money, you know, there's over, we calculated around $400 billion is going to the banks as profit that should and could be going into consumers' pockets. You know, that's, if you look at that over 10 years, you know, that's a huge amount of money that should be going directly into the economy, but is actually going directly to banks, shareholders, and, and senior management. And we just, you know, we think that's unfair. We think that society is better the more money is going back to consumers and the more financially resilient people are in society, then society will benefit. It means things like COVID happen, you know, more people not be in a position to rely on state aid, more people will be able to rely uh, and survive and thrive in those situations. But, you know, we can't do that and keep the big banks in the, with the degree of profitability that they've grown very accustomed to and, and treat as their right, their natural right. They're under no pressure to give that money back to consumers. The only way that's going to happen is through competition. And so that brings up a good point. What does that mean for them? 
Um, you know, obviously, when you become successful with the, it, it, attracting that that generational consumer that you're looking for, what obviously it'll it'll cause attention once they start seeing less less of that profit that you see, even though that profit's pretty pretty insane. What does it mean for them? Do do, do you see them? Well, I, I mean, obviously I the. The, the banks have no economic incentive to, to change in the current environment. You know, you're not going to be becoming the next EVP at uh, Chase if you suggested increasing the checking account from 0.01 to 0.1%. You know, that's, that's just, just giving money back to consumers for no reason. They're not going to have more accounts that way. You know, there's, this, there's this very strange dynamic, and it was really well synthesized by a piece of research that, that we read recently, and, and it was a quote from a bank CEO, and he said, you need, to, you need to torture people pretty hard before they leave a bank. And I think that's really, you know, it's odd, and it, and it, and it shouldn't be that way, but it's reality. There's this, this sort of Stockholm syndrome that consumers remain with banks, despite the evidence that banks are not working in their best interest. And up to this point, there's been no alternative. So the banks haven't had to sweat at all. You know, if you're, if you're, Got a checking account. You're a, you're a high earning young professional. You have got a checking account with Bank of America. You've got your Chase Sapphire Reserve. You've got Robinhood for you know play investing. You're not going to go and bank with Revolut. That's that's not a that's not challenging Chase and right. B of A's hegemony at all. We need companies like ours that are genuinely providing an alternative, genuinely differentiating both in terms of product design and value for money. And it's only that when we collectively get up to scale that the economic interest of the big banks is going to change. And suddenly they will at some point have an economic interest in changing. And it's only then that we're going to see change. And it's not because bankers are evil people. It's just they're existing in a company and they've got, you know, families and lives and careers and, and you, you, you become successful in a bank by keeping it going. Um, until course. the external pressures force them to change, there, there is simply no reason for them to change. And, and then sadly in the current environment, that's that's what we're faced with. So I hope that that and it's not just going to be us. It's going to be a whole cohort of of, of new players that are going to begin to erode the you know complete lack of real competition that the big banks are under. And you know it's really the top six, top eight banks. Eighty three percent of all deposits in the U.S. are with them. You know the number of banks in the U.S. has gone down. I think in the last ten years from twelve thousand FDIC member banks to less than five thousand today, and that's going to continue. And all that money. Bizarrely, despite the fact that the big banks are providing the least value for money, it's all going into the big banks, and there, there needs to be an alternative. Yeah, and I think it's a smart move by um, the UMBs of the world, the sponsor banks, to be able to transition into this type of model for them to get you know, a piece of those deposits that probably traditionally they wouldn't get whatsoever. Um, so attaching themselves to, to, to someone like you guys to be able to uh, uh, attract uh, the deposits for themselves to be able to operate and compete. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, and I, and I think Goldman Sachs is a really interesting. Very uh, interesting. That was my know, next uh, topic here. Yeah, you know they 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 don't have any of the incumbents. You know, economic self interest that they're not in. Re- well, they haven't been historically in retail banking. They started, you know, with Marcus, etc. They bought a wealth company recently, a wealth management company recently. They've got all the resources in the world. Now they're still slow, and you know they have all those issues of being a big uh, incumbent, but. I, I think the wild card really is going to be Goldman Sachs plus a collection of fintechs that are going to collectively create the the pressure on big banks to to actually move, and it's going to take yeah. five to ten years. 
Of course. And, and I like, I do like the way they're looking at it. As I, I touched on earlier, they're, they're really offering more of a, they do have the retail side and they're, they're going to package that together, but they are offering, you know, that, that banking as a service layer as well, partnering with Amazon for loans and, and just different opportunities to plug in uh, where they see fit uh, to be able to operate and, and kind of expand that ecosystem uh, to allow a lot of their services to embed into other apps as we now move towards sort of like an embedded finance type of model, non-traditional uh, yeah. finance institutions be able to offer those types of services. And, um, and I almost, I, I mean, I'd love to be a fly on a wall because they, they have so many opportunities to genuinely disrupt uh, financial yeah. services. It's, it's which ones do they pick and, and uh, what order of priority do they put them in? And can they manage, you know, five, six, seven different programs all in parallel? You know, it's going to be, that's, that's certainly a company I think is absolutely fascinating in this space and watch with interest. Definitely. Last piece uh, before we close out here. Um, obviously, you know, you entering the market did a lot of research on your side of, of the segmentation that you wanted to attract and the opportunity. Is there anything you can share with other segments that might be you know, up for the taking that you saw doing your, your you know, landscape and, and research um, that you see that there's definitely opportunity for maybe some listeners that are kind of on the fence of where to you know, put their efforts into? Well, I, I, I think we hit on one, you know, compliance as a service is, is definitely a big element that's missing. And, and I know there are players in this space um, and we're talking to some of them. I think credit cards is another wildly untapped opportunity in the market. You know, that, that market really has not changed in 30 years, either from an infrastructure perspective or how, you know, the value proposition actually being offered to consumers. It's very hard work. It's very manual. It's very costly and it's not predicated on driving innovation and diversification in, in terms of value value prop innovation. And I think what we'll I think we'll see that begin to change. And and you know we're we're already aligned with one company around this idea of an AWS for credit cards where the a, a fintech can come with very limited resources but lots of ideas and work with a platform to set up a, a credit card proposition in, in months and at low cost to test those propositions and see, you know, really understand consumer feedback and get the data. That, that I think is the nearer term, big opportunity in the market. US is one of the biggest credit markets in the world, $4 trillion um, spent on, on credit. Four or five companies control the vast majority of that, all mm-hmm. with products that look remarkably similar. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a market that, that we certainly think is absolutely right for disruption and bringing good, solid digital thinking, shared services, shared infrastructure, take the cost out, take the complexity out, manage the risk. That could transform really, really quickly. So that's, that's an area I think we're going to see a lot of activity over the next 12 months. Yeah, I think so too. I think you get both of them on the head, um, especially the conversations that we're having. There's at least... Um, you know, quite a few people thinking about it, which is a good step in the direction, which is beneficial to everybody that's in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, really excited to to stay at the forefront of that. There's, there's um, an odd one that we've come across, which is precious metal trading. You know, if you look at uh, crypto, yeah. you know, it, it's it's become sort of front of mind given COVID and a lot of people are rushing to gold and, and, and these types of assets. Traditionally, gold is a very, you know, the c- consumers who are trading gold are in their 60s and 70s. It's, it's not a young person's game, but it's curiously still, you know, interesting and, and, and sort of fun. You see people, 
you, you know, the incredible digitalization of crypto. And then you look at gold and silver and platinum and other precious metals, and it's still, you know, you'd think it's 1982. And um, <laughs> I, I think alternative assets in general, you know, whether it's Yield Street or Rally Road, fractional farm ownership, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff that's going to happen around that. But I think, you know, gold and silver is an extremely established, extremely old-fashioned business. We're talking to a couple of different companies in that field. I think, I think you're going to see that Revolut's just announced precious metal trading in, in Europe. I think you're going to see younger millennials dipping their toes into, into precious metal trading once it's more available uh, through mobile in particular. Very interesting. Yeah, definitely. would like to keep uh, an eye on that for sure. Um, a couple of Krugerrands in the back, in the back drawer. One never knows. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben, it was great to have you on. Um, what what I'll do is we'll once we release uh, this episode, we'll share uh, you know your information to to you know send prospective users your way, and uh, you know I appreciate you coming on and sharing some insight from from your knowledge, and uh, you know really looking forward to seeing you guys grow. Um, and good luck uh, with with your launch moving forward. Thanks so much. It's been great talking. Currency Cloud is an online payments company that makes international money transfers fast and simple for businesses. We're building a borderless future where international transactions are seamless for a better user experience. Discover the world's most trusted payment platform and our toolkit of developer-friendly APIs at currencycloud.com. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.